All right, no need to lollygag. Let's just pick up right where we left off. Um, so last time we were talking about the whole Greek city-state identity. Greeks identifying themselves in terms of their cities. Athens sees themselves as the, you know, the legacy of Theseus and Athena. We have Thebes having the legacy of Cadmus on the one hand, Oedipus on the other, and lots and lots of others in between. Um, we have Sparta and their legacy leading back all the way to Lycurgus and his sort of weird law that doesn't get passed down via writing, but actually just orally. Um, we see them all having these sort of mythic origins. Now I want to turn my attention and talk about the Greek national movement. I spent all of last time stressing Greeks as city-states, Greeks as city-states, Greeks as city-states. The idea of the Greeks as like one singular nation is a new development. But now I want to talk about how that happened. Um, and the two sort of approaches that I want to take this from. First I want to talk about it historically, uh, like how it actually went down. But I also want to talk about the Trojan War and how that sort of contributes to this idea that the Greeks are all united, that they all come from the same groups of Mycenaeans centuries ago and how that contributes to like how they understand their role in the world at large. Um, but to start, I want to sort of draw more attention to the history, which means let's open up that PowerPoint again um, that we opened up last time. And once again, just go to that first slide, that first timeline slide that goes all the way back to like 3200 BCE and all the way forward to the 19th century. Um, this time, rather than focusing on the classical period, I want to move us forward a little bit into the Hellenistic period. Um, this is the moment in time when Alexander the Great takes the reins of the Greek world and then proceeds to just blow through the rest of the ancient world. Um, as is emphasized in the Crash Course video on the subject, and as is emphasized basically in every history textbook ever that bothers to cover this stuff. Um, Hellenism is one of the single most important ancient things, ancient moments, ancient events in the historical record. Like, where classical Greece definitely is this really important thing as far as, like, how does Western culture develop into its own thing, Hellenism is important on a much bigger scale. Like, I cannot emphasize enough how important Hellenism actually is. And there's sort of, like, two prongs to this. Um, before we can get even to Alexander the Great and to Hellenism, we have to talk about this Greek national identity. Um, and both Crash Course and Extra History emphasize that this has a lot to do with Herodotus. Um, so in the Extra History, history videos, they're stressing the story that we know as the 300. Um, the 300 Spartans who stood against the Persian army, who fought at the Battle of Thermopylae, who fought them to a standstill until they were betrayed and then you know they got like surrounded in the middle of the night but then they continued to give their lives to the last man dying across the board so that you know greece would be protected in this alliance um and while this does make for a great story like it's very exciting if you've seen the movie or either of the movies for that matter um even if you read herodotus's account of the persian wars like all of this sort of makes for this heroic last stand moment 
that is something that resonates with us. Um, it is something mythic on a certain level, even though it is something that did, in fact, historically happen, and for all intents and purposes, grounded in 100% fact. But Herodotus is a really interesting transition point, both for Greece and for history across the board. Um, up until now, when you tell stories of things that happened, they usually are myths. Um, again, the Trojan War is relayed to us in a series of myths, the, just like the account of the creation of the universe. And while the Trojan War is a factual event that actually happened, it's kind of hard to or disseminate the truth, like the scientific verifiable data and the history, so to speak, from the myth that we find in Iliad and in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So for example, like we've all read, hopefully, the chunk of Apollodorus that deals with the Iliad and the Odyssey for this class. And you'll notice that the gods play a fairly prominent role into things, like, you know, when Menelaus and Paris are having their duel over the fate of the universe, um, they, like, one of the gods cuts the helmet strap on Paris and thus frees him as Menelaus is dragging him around. Aphrodite then whisks him off safely into the city. Um, these are things that probably did not happen from a historical perspective. Any scientist worth their salt would say that the gods do not involve themselves in this way if they exist at all. Um, and most would say that they don't. But notice that this sort of approach is exactly the same as the deeper, less historically motivated myths like the creation myths. You know, Aphrodite plays an active role in the Trojan War the same way that Aphrodite plays an active role in the creation of human beings. Um, there's, it's difficult to say exactly where the line between historicity, what did in fact happen, and myth-making actually is. Now, Herodotus is the first one to sort of try and divide those two disciplines. Herodotus, in his story of the Persian Wars, very much abstracts the history from the myth. He deliberately does not include supernatural elements, although he also includes some dragons, so let's not get like too carried away with this. What's important for Herodotus is he is kind of the first classical historian in the sense that we talk about history and the study of history today. Um, he, the idea, like, we go into this class thinking, you know, mythology is something separate from history. We do not tell the story of, you know, George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson using myth. Although, you know, now that we've got Hamilton the musical, we're getting a little bit closer to that, and I'm sure it's just a matter of time until it becomes even more mythic. Um, for the Greeks, there was no differentiation between the two. If you wanted to talk about Theseus, you talked about Theseus in his mythic context. You know, slaying minotaurs and, you know, defeating people who, like, cut people up because they didn't fit in their bed properly. Um, you talked about the guy who, you know, drove off Medea from his father's household, who was blessed and possibly even, um, like, engendered by Poseidon. Um, these mythic elements were bound up with the historical figure. You can't separate one from the other. But Herodotus wants to separate them. Like, Leonidas is not bound up with the gods. The gods do not make an appearance deliberately affecting the outcome of this particular war. Um, and part of that is because Herodotus writes 
a mere hundred or so years after the Greco-Persian War, as opposed to the hundreds of years between Homer and the actual Trojan War, or Hesiod and the events that he talks about, if we can even posit those as actual events. Um, there's much less time at stake. Um, Herodotus can talk to witnesses, or at the very least, like, the children of witnesses. He can use histor the historical records. Um, now, this is important from the perspective of this is how history becomes history and not just myth, but it's also important because Herodotus binds his sort of storytelling with a purpose. He tells the story of the Greco-Persian War with the intention of explaining of sort of driving the Greeks to understand themselves as one nation. Um, the thing about the Greco-Persian War, as Extra History talks about, and as Crash Course sort of like juts up against, um, this was this moment when all of the Greek city-states banded together to fight a common threat, the Persians. Um, now, never mind the fact that, like, again, within a generation, the Spartans and the Athenians are going to be fighting against each other, and the Spartans are actually going to get the Persians to help them to beat up Athens. Um, this doesn't quite fit into Herodotus's storytelling or our understanding of the way that, you know, Greece as a nation works. But importantly, as much as the Peloponnesian War is also a big deal and also important historically and also has a lot of major influence on Western culture across the board, the story that endures is the story of the 300, the story as Herodotus told it, the story where the Greeks are a united front, united by their culture, united by their language, united by their mythic traditions, by their gods, by their religion, against the Persians, outsiders, invaders, enemies, slavers, and despicable fiends, which shows a certain amount of xenophobia, like this is like Herodotus in no way intended to, you know, respect the Persians or present them as sympathetic in any way, um, which is something that, like, P.S. in 300, Frank Miller does the same thing, and we should tolerate that less today um, than we did then, even though Miller is obviously, like, working with the Greek perspective there, so it's ambiguous. Um, what Herodotus does is he tries to unite the Greeks, he tries to basically stress that their culture is one coherent, consistent thing. And this is new. Like, there's some degree of this you can see throughout the myths. There are frequently times when the Greeks will talk about barbarians, people who don't speak the language of the Greeks, and therefore they just sound like they're saying bar, 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 all the time to Greek ears, which, again, xenophobic and intolerant. Not going to try and, like, put a smiley face on that. Um, the Greeks do recognize that there's, like, people that they can treat with, i.e. other Greeks, even if they are Spartans, Thebans, Corinthians, etc., um, and everybody else who doesn't speak Greek and doesn't share the same gods and doesn't have the same culture. Um, but increasingly, this becomes a more and more powerful force. And especially to us now, 2,500 years later, when we look back at the Greeks, we see them as one nation, as one group of people, as one culture, with one central sort of cultural assumption uniting them. Um, which is why I had to work so hard in the last lecture to stress, no, they're not, really. Like, actually, they are a whole bunch of different city-states with a whole bunch of different agendas and a whole bunch of, like, existing grievances. Like, they are not united. Um, 
they are as divided as they are united. They are neighbors at best and mortal enemies at worst because oftentimes, you know, the people who you are closest to are also the people you feud with the most. Um, but Herodotus very much changes that perspective. He, by writing history, kind of gets to decide what the story is going to come out to be. And in that sense, he's actually a mythmaker in his own right. Um, the lines between myth and history that Herodotus seemed to be drawing, the lines between reality as, you know, scientifically verifiable fact versus reality as something religious and bound up with the mystical and the supernatural, that distinction does separate him from what we typically understand as myth, bringing up history proper, but in the sense of myth as something that communicates ideals and morals and values, Herodotus is arguably one of the best myth-makers the Greeks ever produced. The idea of a national identity is a myth that Herodotus wrote and a myth that the Greeks started to swallow. Um, so after the Greco-Persian War and the Peloponnesian War and all those Greeks fighting against each other in the Peloponnesian War, at the end of all of this, we get a new age. We get Alexander the Great of Macedon coming through, uniting all of the Greek nations, conquering them. Technically, Philip of Macedon is the one who conquered Greece, but then also spreading that culture. Um, this is what Hellenism is all about. As much as Alexander creating like the greatest empire in the ancient world up until this point, an empire that stretched from Macedonia and Greece all the way to the western um, banks of the Indus River, like that's a huge undertaking and an impressive empire. But what sticks, what makes this moment in history so incredibly important is not the conquest, it's not the victories, it's not the military accomplishments, it's the spread of the culture. So if you scroll down to the last slide in this PowerPoint, I have a map here that shows the extent of Hellenism. Um, and it's divided up into different colors for reasons that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but what I want to stress is that everything that is colored, everything that's not just like boring yellow, um, that is the spread of Alexander's empire. As far, like all of Greece, all of the Greek city-states that we've talked about as separate entities, they're all united under Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, um, as well as Macedon itself. He sweeps through Asia Minor, conquers the entirety of the Persian Empire at this point. He sweeps south into Egypt, um, as far as Ethiopia and as far west as what would be Carthage. Um, he sweeps so far east, even beyond where the Persians had conquered once before, all the way to, again, the banks of the Indus River, what we would call India today. All of this was under Alexander's control. And importantly, Alexander brought Greek culture with him every step of the way. It's said that Alexander... Um, was the pupil of Aristotle. Aristotle is like the third of the great philosophers produced by classical Greece. Um, Socrates was the first who interrogated the world and was killed for his efforts at the end of the Peloponnesian War. Um, Plato is the student of Socrates who then sort of codified Socrates' ideas and wrote all of the dialogues which we know and love today, including most importantly the Plato's Republic. And then Aristotle is the student of Plato who was, had a vested interest in natural philosophy, what we would today call science. 
Aristotle hung out with Alexander the Great. Um, he was Alexander the Great's mentor. He taught Alexander the Great everything that he knew, or at least everything that Alexander was willing to learn. Um, and Alexander even brought him along on quite a few of his voyages through his conquest of Persia. Um, importantly, Alexander also loved dearly the Iliad and the Odyssey. It is said that he had copies of the Iliad under his bed everywhere when he went to sleep. Um, but more than that, I want to stress what this actually means. Um, remember, like, in ancient Greece, even though everybody believed different things, like the Spartans and the Athenians and the Thebans and so on, they all had their own set of, like, priorities and their own sort of government structure. Um, they did have their common history. They all read Homer. They all read Hesiod. They all believed in the pantheon of Olympic gods, um, although they worshipped them in radically different ways in some ways. Um, Alexander brought their common beliefs and spread them throughout what at this point was the entire ancient world. After Alexander the Great conquers Egypt and conquers Ethiopia and conquers Persia and conquers Western India and conquers Anatolia, all of these places will now speak Greek. They will all know the stories of Homer and Hesiod the Iliad, the Odyssey, the myths that the Greeks have been talking about, they will all speak the same language, they will all engage in the same trade, they will all use the same money, or at least money that can be translated from place to place. The world, for a moment, all has the same ideas. They're all on the same page. Greek becomes the lingua franca, the universal language of the ancient world. And more than anything else, that's probably why this class is about Greek mythology. There's a question on the exam that I used to, to give. I, I may or may not still be there. Um, the first time that I taught this class, I put a question on the exam saying, why were the Greeks, why were Greek myths so widespread? And my students answered things like, well, they're really great stories, or the gods are really interesting, or, you know, they, they talk about fundamental human truths like love and like uh, warfare and betrayal, and, and that's all true. Like, these are important stories, and I do not want to de-emphasize this. But the fact of the matter is, the reason why we study Greek myth, the reason why it's so important, so foundational to Western culture, is because Alexander the Great went and spread them all over the place to the point that everybody knew them. This became the common heritage of the ancient world. It is an accident of history that Greek mythology became as powerful as it is. And I realize that that's not necessarily like a 100%, you know, true statement, that it is subject to debate, that other scholars will disagree on me, with me on this. Um... <clears throat> but what I want to stress is that it is at least partially accidental. Um, Greek culture wasn't special, um, or at least it wasn't so special that it deserved or like merited propagation. It wasn't inevitable that all of us would at one point know the Greek myths. Um, as the extra history and as Crash Course stresses, 
Um, Persia was a good civilization in its own right. They did not own slaves. They practiced religious tolerance and freedom. In some ways, they were more enlightened than the Greeks and the Spartans. Um, and for that matter, like the fact that we put such a high premium on democracy is kind of dumb. Um, like Athenian democracy was a colossal failure. Um, as snazzy as it looked on paper and as much as they were excited about it, like it lasted for maybe 200 years, maybe 300. That's really it. Um, after the Peloponnesian War, after Sparta conquered Athens, democracy kind of was done. Um, Athens was then ruled by a series of tyrants, including Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great. Um, their democracy no longer had the teeth it did in the classical period. Um, like, and even some of the Athenian citizens recognized that democracy was a shit way of governing a society. Like Plato himself in the Republic says that democracy is like one step removed from mob rule. It is the tyranny of the majority over the minority and therefore not a good thing. Um, as much as we get like all excited about American democracy, as much as we're talking about how we're the greatest country in the world and how we've got the best government ever, really, like, there's a shelf life on democracy. It has an expiration date. Um, it does not tend to survive terribly well. Um, it is very susceptible to tyrants, um, which is something that you should probably remember in the coming months and years as it become as our democracy becomes even more jeopardized but i'll get off my soapbox um what i'm trying to say is that what makes greece awesome isn't necessarily what makes greece survive in the cultural consciousness um Greece is really cool. There's a lot of really cool things going on there. The myths are awesome. I like reading them. I like telling you about them. My students tend to enjoy reading them and hearing about them. But they're awesome because... They're awesome because they're awesome. They're, there's like lots of good stuff in them, but that doesn't, that's not why they survived as well as they did. They survived as well as they did because history conspired to make them survive. Um, history conspired to have an entire set of cultures read and reread these myths over and over and over again until they became valued in this way. Um, it's not entirely clear what makes the Greek myths great because our bias is to think that the Greek myths are great because we were told the Greek myths are great for 2,500 years. Um, this is the foundation of storytelling in the West. Um, the conventions of the myths are conventions that became the standard for storytelling, for myth-making. Um, in short, we like the Greek myths because we like the Greek myths. And that's all there is to it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're not important. That doesn't mean that they're not valuable. That doesn't mean that they're not good. What it means is they are important because of this historical accident and not in spite of it. Um, or at the very least, we have to recognize that it could just be a historical accident that caused us to teach them 2,500 years later. If it wasn't for Alexander the Great carrying Homer and Hesiod over all of Persia, like re or prioritizing them in his libraries and bringing them to all sorts of different ancient peoples, 
we probably wouldn't be reading them today. It could be that we'd be reading Roman myths instead, or we'd be reading Persian myths. Perhaps we'd all be Zoroastrians. There are like three different ways that we almost became Zoroastrians um, over the course of history, rather than like Christians motivated by Greek mythology. Um, but that's a conversation for next week. Suffice it to say for now, Hellenism is hugely important because it gave everyone a common perspective, a common attitude, a common culture, and a common mythology. Um, this idea of a Greek nation expanded to everywhere else. Egypt and India and Anatolia and Afghanistan and Ethiopia, everywhere, um, at least by ancient standards. So what I want to stress this time rather than last time is not the myths that make these city-states and places different. I want to stress the common myths, the myth that gets carried everywhere that Alexander the Great goes, namely the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, we're going to spend a good half of the class in the coming weeks. Like after the midterm, it's all Iliad and Odyssey in here. Um, but as I stressed at the very beginning of class, there are no spoilers in this class, and we are going to totally spoil the Iliad and the Odyssey before we get into Homer's version of this. So once again, I had you read Apollodorus, because Apollodorus gives us a nice, concise summary of all of this stuff, while also like presenting it in a way that you know gives us all the major details outside of what Homer, in fact, presents. Um, and these are the stories that are going to inform this entire new ancient world informed by this spread of Hellenism, the Greek culture going to the far corners of the, of the world. Um, now, I don't want to like rehash everything that's going to happen in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, primarily what I want to focus on is the stuff that we're not going to read in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The stuff leading up to the Iliad and the Odyssey, the stuff like before the Iliad takes place and after the Iliad concludes, as well as what happens to the other people besides Odysseus um, on their various voyages home. So first off, I wanna stress how the Iliad starts out, like how the war against, how the Trojan War ultimately is explained um, in the mythic environment. Um, so let's kind of like focus our attention there instead. Um, so first off, we have Helen. Helen is the foundation of the Trojan War. This is the major inciting incident that is going to cause this big issue. Um, Helen comes about because Zeus had sex with a swan. Um, Leda is this beautiful woman that Zeus falls for, um, but naturally Hera like is catching, is keeping a close eye on Zeus. So Zeus approaches Leda in the form of a swan, and apparently like swan rapes her. So Leda gives birth to Helen, and Helen is the most beautiful woman who ever lived. And now we should be thinking of Pandora. 
um, and of Hesiod and his whole attitude towards women because we're going to absolutely hear that echoed here. Um, Homer's attitude towards sexuality and love tends to be fairly different than Hesiod. Hesiod puts a higher premium on love than Homer does. If anything, that means that Homer is going to be even more critical of women and love of women, especially um, throughout most of his writing. But this myth especially emphasizes that Helen and her beauty is what caused this horrible, destructive conflict. Um, and I want to stress that. Like, the Iliad is... Or the the war on the war the Trojan War is a glorious battle. Like people are very proud to have served in it, um, but at the same time, it is a bad thing. The Greeks generally consider war not great. At least Homer will emphasize over and over and over again that it's not great. Um, that it is destructive, that it takes lives before their time, that it hurts more people than it helps. Um, the glory of the Greek victory in Troy is marred substantially by the profundity of the Greek losses, the number of heroes destroyed in the conflict, and for that matter, it's not a terribly glorious victory when all is said and done. They win by deception, as we'll talk about. Um, so when we are sort of leading up to it with Helen is the most beautiful woman who ever lived, we need to recognize that this is yet again the Greeks saying that beauty is freaking dangerous. Um, remember that Hesiod, when he's talking about Pandora and the works and days, and when he's talking about, you know, the creation of women in the theogony, he emphasizes that women are themselves devised as a punishment from Zeus. Um, that whole thing about like the drone bee who sits at home and doesn't do anything while the worker bees do all the hard work and they just like eat up all the stuff that the worker bees make for them. Remember that now uh, because Helen is a brilliant example, perhaps the best example in Greek mythology of this phenomenon. She is absolutely gorgeous. Everyone wants Helen. Like, every dude, every king, every noble who has a shot with her, they will do anything to get Helen. And as a result, everyone's going to die. Um, like, the, she's going to cause so much suffering and so much pain. So notice the way that this plays out. Um, so in paragraph 3108, we get, Now the kings of Greece repaired to Sparta to win the hand of Helen. The wooers were these, and there's this long freaking list, starting with Ulysses slash Odysseus, um, the son of Laertes. Again, Apollodorus is writing much later than the classical Greek writer, so he will frequently interchange the Roman names with the Greek names. Odysseus is known as Ulysses to the Romans, um, and as a consequence, like you should be familiar with both names, uh, Odysseus and Ulysses. Um, and then there's like all of this other list. There are all of these different kings, all of these different lords. Like everybody shows up to this big party that Helen's dad is giving to like promise her hand in marriage. And everybody is competing for her. And this becomes a problem. Like if this guy is going to give away Helen in marriage, he's necessarily going to offend everyone who doesn't get her. There's only one Helen and there's like 50 kings who show up to woo her. Um, 
So remember that, you know, like we talked about in the last lecture, the head of the household, he is responsible for protecting his household. Like, he is in charge. This is why he gets to choose who Helen is going to marry, but also keep in mind that this is going to be a political arrangement. Marriage is not for love in Greek society. It is purely economic and political. You form an alliance with another household when you marry off your daughters or when you marry one of their daughters. Um, this is basically a mutual guarantee of safety and security, basically an alliance. Um, if somebody attacks the person who married your daughter, you will necessarily want to protect both that household because of your daughter. Um, as well as your investment in that household and because you expect them to come to your aid as well. Um, so this is a really tough situation. If this guy marries Helen off to any one person, he will guaranteed make an ally for life. He will also make 49 enemies for life because everyone is here to claim her. Um, so we get Odysseus, Ulysses comes up with an elegant solution Seeing the multitude of them, Tyndareus feared that the preference of one might set the others quarreling, but Ulysses promised that if he would help him to win the hand of Penelope, he would suggest a way by which there would be no quarrel. And when Tyndareus promised to help him, Ulysses told him to exact an oath from all the suitors that they would defend the favored bridegroom against any wrong that might be done him in respect of his marriage. Every time we run into Odysseus, you should keep in mind that his like dominant heroic characteristic is his ingenuity. He is wily. He is clever. He is wise. He is beloved of Athena especially. We'll see that especially in the Odyssey. But he is a tactician, a strategist. Um, he is the genius behind the Greek world at this time in the Trojan War. Um, so naturally, Odysseus solves this problem with a plot. But What's really awesome about this situation is that Odysseus, like, devises a plot where he makes out the best. Um, here is this awkward situation, like, 50 kings have all shown up on Tyndarius's doorstep to woo the hand of Helen. Tyndarius is now in a tough spot, he doesn't want to offend everyone. Um, and Odysseus sees that there is a bad situation here, devises a solution, and also devises a way to profit. Like, Odysseus knows he has no chance getting Helen. He is not the strongest, he is not the most handsome, he is not the most powerful. Um, but Helen's sister, Penelope, is also pretty awesome. And Odysseus recognizes that he would rather come in second place in this situation and come away with, like, a way better wife than he would ever expect normally. And in an exchange, he has to just give up the one that he's not going to get in the first place. This is like an awesome opportunity for Odysseus. He gets Penelope and somebody else gets Helen and it doesn't become his problem. Um, so his plan is let's all agree that whoever Tyndarius gives Helen to, everyone else who is here, who is here to make this arrangement will protect that um, on pain of death of everybody else. That's the key here. Um, all of these 50 kings agree that whoever gets Helen, they will not betray that bond because everyone else will come to their aid. The 49 people who could theoretically get a hand at Helen, now that Odysseus is like working out details for Penelope, they all have it in their best interest to go along with this because if they are the one who gets Helen, then everyone else will protect them rather than antagonizing them or fighting them. 
Um, but it actually isn't to their advantage because, you know, they might actually have a better shot of just carrying her off later. Um, so Odysseus prevents that from happening. But notice the consequences. All 50 of these kings have agreed. If Helen gets stolen away, if somebody breaks this deal, then all 50 of them are bound to take out whoever violates this relationship. So at the end of the day, Tyndareus promises Helen to Menelaus, who is currently king of Sparta, um, and that's supposed to be it. Like, Helen is now married, everyone goes home disappointed except Odysseus, who got his second best deal, and Menelaus, who did in fact win the hand of Helen, hooray. Um, 48 suitors go back disappointed, but now bound by their oath to protect the marriage of Menelaus and Helen. This is our setup. Now, then Paris, or Alexander as he's known to the Romans, is the one who ultimately breaks this deal. Now, Paris isn't originally involved in the deal, so technically he's not, like, betraying anyone. He wasn't one of the Greek kings involved. Paris has a separate arrangement going on. Um, the dominant myth, the one that Apollodorus records here and that we should definitely remember because this is the one that Homer's going to point to and that like most other traditions tend to adopt, um, is that Paris was contracted by the goddesses of Olympus, specifically Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, to decide which one of them was the most beautiful. The story goes back even farther that apparently, like, Eris, the goddess of discord, had one of the irresistible golden apples of the Hesperides in her possession for some mad reason. Um, and while she was on Olympus being bored, she's like, you know, this is boring, all these gods sitting around peacefully. Let's stir up some shit. So she throws out one of these apples and all three of these goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena, go lunging for it. And they're fighting over whose apple it was, whose apple Eris threw it to. Like, who did Eris throw the apple to? Um, was it Hera? Was it Aphrodite? Was it Athena? It seemed like it was any one of them, so now they're fighting over possession of this apple. And Eris is like, hey, I've got a good idea. Why don't you just decide which one of you is the most beautiful because then you deserve the apple. And of course, this pisses everyone off because now you have Hera and Aphrodite and Athena fighting over which one of them is the most beautiful. So they take their problem to Paris for some dumb reason. Paris is really handsome. That's like the one thing he's got going for him. We will find him in the Iliad being basically a dick all the other time and also kind of an airhead. Um, Paris is not worthy of respect, but he is super handsome. So all of these feuding goddesses go to Paris and they say, all right, Paris, you decide which of us is the most beautiful. And Paris knows a trap when he sees one sort of more than that he sees an opportunity so he's like okay so if i decide that you're the most beautiful what will you give me because paris is not that dumb and each of the goddesses offers something in response so hera says that she will give him the kingdom over all men and therefore like paris will be the ruler of all human beings Athena promises that if Paris chooses her, she will give him victory in war, and every time that Paris goes to war, Athena will help him and make sure that he is victorious. And then Aphrodite, being Aphrodite, says, I will give you the hand of whatever woman you want, which of course means Helen, because she is the most beautiful and the most desirable among women. Paris, who is a dumbass, decides to go with Aphrodite's proposal. 
And thus this whole mess begins. Paris is the son, one of many sons, of Priam, the king of Troy. Um, we will see a lot of Priam and his children. According to the stories, Priam had 100 sons and 100 daughters to a variety of wives. He was incredibly rich and incredibly powerful. Troy is arguably the most powerful city in the ancient world, at least as uh, Homer sees it. Um, so when Paris agrees to Aphrodite's proposal and carries Helen off, this triggers the entire series of events that we have been seeing in motion. Um, so Paris carries off Aphrodite to Troy, and now all 50 of those kings who agreed initially to protect the relationship between Helen and Menelaus are now honor-bound to go chasing after him and to get Helen back and restore the relationship between Menelaus and Helen. Which means sailing over the Aegean Sea with all of these huge ships, laying siege to the city of Troy with all of its wealth and all of its power, and what will eventually be ten years of unmitigated warfare. It's gonna be a giant shit show. Um, all because of, first, the beautiful Helen enticing all of these men to throw their lives away in this foolish bargain, because of Odysseus and his ingenuity biting everyone in the ass at this point, and because of, of course, these beautiful goddesses feuding over their vanity. Um, notice that Odysseus also isn't going to get penalized terribly much over this. Very few are going to call out Odysseus as being the primary cause of the Trojan War, even though he is one of the sort of divisors behind it. Mostly the Greeks are going to see this as the war over Helen's beauty, i.e., again, women are the worst, beautiful women are just a temptation and a punishment, like Hesiod said, or because of the women in Olympus, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena fighting over their beauty. Again, the vanity of women is a punishment to all men. It's Greek misogyny once again coming to the forefront. The entire Trojan War is basically the fault of women, as far as Homer and Hesiod and all of the other myth-tellers are concerned. Now, it doesn't get off to a great start either. So after all of, all of this stuff happens and now the Greeks are duty-bound to go chasing after Helen and restore her to Menelaus, um, we end up lollygagging quite a bit for various reasons. Again, we had all of these 50 kings together, but it's actually kind of difficult to round up 50 kings when you don't have a beautiful daughter who is of marriageable age hanging around. Um, so you'll notice that a lot of the following is sort of devoted to, like, how do you get all of these people organized? Um, one of my favorite stories is of, like, everybody coming to Ulysses, like, okay, Odysseus, it's time to go. Remember that deal that you made? Odysseus is apparently pretending to be insane so he can get out of going on this stupid like ridiculous voyage which admittedly he is partially responsible for um and then they have to like threaten his family in order for him to knock it off and actually like hold to his oath um again typical odysseus behavior um but the other thing that you'll notice is that they get completely sidetracked like, they finally get the fleet together, and they're like, yeah, let's go to Troy! And apparently somebody in the back is like, where's Troy? And nobody knows. Like, they have no idea how to get there. So they just, like, sail off into the sunset, and they end, they end up showing up, not at Troy, but the island where Heracles' son is apparently running the show, um, Mycia. 
so they just wreck the place like they take over um they conquer it and they take all the stuff and they enslave a bunch of the women and men and you know do what greeks do and they get back in their boats and they go back to sea and then a storm comes and it blows everybody back to their homelands like complete failure um not only did we not get to troy but like we ransacked some other rando city just because it was there and then everybody is right back where they started so 10 years the first 10 years of the whole trojan expedition is just squandered like two years after the rape of helen everybody is finally ready to set out they end up at the wrong location they end up going home and then for eight years everybody just sort of dawdles lollygags and nothing happens um finally they make it back to mycenae and they are getting ready to you know depart for the second time and they can't because the winds are calm like the only way to travel with these boats is by the wind but as the text says they are wind bound the wind is calm and therefore they cannot leave um so they naturally inquire about to the oracle at delphi what do we need to do to get poseidon and zeus on our side so we can take off and go to troy and the word comes back agamemnon has to sacrifice his daughter iphigenia and this is not normal like we've run into a couple of human sacrifices over the course of these myths at this point it is pretty rare and this is by far the most recent of the commanded uh um sacrifices so now they like agamemnon has a fight with his wife clytemnestra because she doesn't want to give up iphigenia um but finally he does in fact make the sacrifice or as the text puts it artemis whisks her off and we never see her again um either way the winds start up again and everybody is ready to go now the first thing that i want to stress here going into the whole issue of the iliad and the odyssey is the leadership um, you'll notice that Agamemnon is one of the most powerful leaders in this whole operation. Um, this is before the classical period. Remember, Trojan War is like 1200 BCE, possibly even earlier. Um, this is in the age of the Mycenaean Greeks, and Agamemnon is the king of Mycenae, um, the sort of capital of their world. So even though Menelaus is the Spartan king, um, and is in fact a big deal, he is not nearly as respected as Agamemnon is. The two players, the two major leaders here are Agamemnon and Achilles. And the organization is Agamemnon is going to be running the ground battle. He is the general. Achilles is the admiral. He is taking, he is the leader while they are at sea. Um, both get sort of equal recognition here, but that's not going to be how it stays. So they do, in fact, get to Troy in this situation. You'll notice that there's, like, tons and tons of ships from all of these different kings. The story goes that Helen is the face that launched a thousand ships. And in the Iliad, there is, in fact, like, a long count of every, like, ship and every kingdom that dispatched people to the trojan war there was one in apollodorus as well which i extirpated like you'll notice that i just cut it out and wrote a long list follows um because there's no need for you to read all of those names and it goes on for like several paragraphs um so they finally get to the trojan shores and surprise they've got this big ass wall and nobody can destroy them troy is extremely well protected 
Um, the basic outline of this city is you have this central city set a little far inland, um, but it is also fed by the Scamander, a, rip, a strong, powerful river that runs through the city and out into the Trojan fields, the plains of Ilium. Um, because the Trojans have access to constant running water and a pretty solid source of food, they're not going to be starved out. Um, siege is unsuccessful. The walls of Troy are too strong. So the Greeks are basically stymied. Like they land on this place, they demand Helen, and the Trojans just say no, and now it's a stalemate. And it will remain a stalemate for 10 years. The whole Trojan saga is a 30 year long adventure. 10 years of false starts and like taking over Mycenaeans for some reason. 10 years of sitting on the plains of Troy, not being able to do anything. And then 10 years of everybody trying to get home. Um, and of course, Odysseus is the one that takes the longest. He's why it's 10 years and not shorter because most of everybody else gets home earlier. Um, 30 years. Like this is basically half their lives all of these people who vied for the hand of helen are going to spend trying to get helen back in this particular situation um it's a giant ugly waste of time effort and resources um just huge boondoggle all the way around um now in order to survive this army needs to keep doing things like eating um, and while a bunch of people have brought livestock, this is normal, like, Greek behavior, the supplies are dwindling, and as a result, the Greeks start rampaging over the countryside. The Trojans are safe within their walls, but that means that the Greeks can pillage the Trojan fields, they can march on other cities nearby, they will sail around and pillage local islands. Um, this is how the, the Greek army is going to maintain itself. Um, as a result, like basically a second city of tents is going to spring up outside of the Trojan city where the Greeks are going to protect themselves and their boats and, you know, their food and their women and so on and so forth. It becomes a big deal. Now, most of this we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about. It's not especially important. Where things do get important is when it starts bleeding into the story of the Iliad proper. Um, namely, Agamemnon and company have been rampaging over the countryside, and whether knowingly or unknowingly, they took captive the daughters of one of the oracles of Apollo. Apollo gets mad, as he does, um, and he sends a plague on the Greeks in their little tent city, and in order to get rid of the plague, they have to give back the daughter of the oracle. Unfortunately... Agamemnon himself is the one who took the daughter of the oracle, and he doesn't want to give her up. So, a fight ensues between Agamemnon and Achilles, the two major leaders, um, and Achilles basically has his woman, Briseis, stolen by Agamemnon. Which means that Agamem or Agamemnon is going to sort of assert his authority inappropriately over Achilles because they're both like roughly the same rank and as Achilles points out he is way better a warrior. Um, and Achilles is going to go sulk in his tent for a long time hoping that the Greeks actually get their butts kicked. Um, what plays out is the Iliad. Um, this is the setup of the Iliad. It is late in the game as far as the Trojan War is concerned, like year 8 or 9 of 10, um, when this all transpires. 
What's really important to this story, though, is that this is the story that brings about the death of Hector, the greatest of the Trojan warriors. Like, he has been the leader of the Trojan forces throughout this point. He, like Paris, is a son of Agamemnon, but unlike Paris, he's not a complete tool. Um, Hector is capable. He is thoughtful and responsible. He is moral. He is conscientious. Um, he is protecting his homeland, and he doesn't make stupid mistakes like running off with the women of the opposing army. Um, now, you could be asking at this point, like, why don't they just give Helen back? Well, in part, it's because Paris doesn't want to. In part, it's because Priam and the Trojans think they can beat the Greeks. They're not especially, like, disturbed by the Greeks camping on their doorstep, being unable to actually take over the city. Um, but also, the gods have a role to play in this. This is very much bound up with fate. Um, they are sort of all stuck in this situation. And as more and more people are dying in this war, it becomes more and more difficult to sort of like write off what they've been doing. Um, you know, once you've committed all of those resources, once sons and daughters have been killed in the conflict, no one's going to stop fighting and just surrender because that would make those losses meaningless. Um, it would mean that they threw their lives away for no reason. Um, the Trojans want to wipe the Greeks out. They want to teach them a lesson. So they keep on fighting. Um, but at the end of the Iliad, Hector will die. Achilles will get back into the fight because his own beloved Patroclus is killed by Hector. And in an act of vengeance, Achilles kills Hector and thus basically ensures the destruction of Troy. Um... Throughout the Iliad and throughout most of these myths, it is known that the Trojans are going to lose this fight. Um, the Trojans actually even have a prophetess, Cassandra, who is willing, more than willing to tell them that they're going to lose this fight. The trouble with Cassandra is that while she is a prophetess and she has been gifted the gift of prophecy, she has also been cursed, probably by a vindictive god, to, to never be believed. And this is kind of ends up in this really hilarious situation where like the Clytemnestra or uh, Cassandra will go to the Trojans and be like, guys, the Greeks are going to totally kick our butt. Maybe don't trust that Trojan horse thing. And the Trojans are like, oh, Cassandra, everybody knows that everything you say is true, but we're not going to believe you. So obviously we're not going to believe you. And now sucks to suck. We're going to just sit here and get completely wiped out. And Cassandra's like, oh my gosh, you guys are the worst. Um, but this is the way it goes. Um, eventually, the, after heavy losses on both sides, the Trojans will be defeated. Um, but some of those losses are actually really important in this case. Um, after the whole kerfuffle between Achilles and Agamemnon, Achilles starts fighting for the Greeks again after he kills Hector. And it is said that Achilles is killed by a wayward arrow fired by Paris. Um, which sucks because, again, Paris is a tool and Paris is the worst and Achilles is, like, the greatest fighter on the Greek side. So it is absolutely ridiculous that, like, the worst fighter on the Trojan side manages to take out the best warrior on the Greek side through this, like, bad accident. Um, many myths have it that Achilles was actually invulnerable for most of this war. Um, there's more about Achilles there. 
Um, Thetis, his mother, was one of the goddesses, like not one of the high-ranking, like top 14 goddesses, um, but an important goddess nonetheless. Um, in fact, a goddess important enough that even Zeus had his eye on her. But Zeus received a prophecy that whoever Thetis bore, like the child of Thetis, would be more powerful than his father, um, the father who like gave birth to him. So Zeus doesn't want to sleep with Thetis because once again, Zeus is paranoid about being overthrown. If Zeus sleeps with Thetis, the son produced by that relationship will be more powerful than Zeus and Zeus can't have that. So as a result, Zeus like and most of the gods conspire to make sure that Thetis sleeps with a mortal instead. Um, and so she sleeps with Peleus and they give birth to Achilles and Achilles is a way better soldier and a way better warrior than, Pe than Peleus ever was. Um, but a couple of things about Achilles. First off, Thetis wishes that she had not given birth to a mortal. She's really upset about it. Um, she would much rather have a child who was a god who will not die, so she will not have to suffer the loss of that child. So Thetis prepares for this by apparently dipping Achilles into like this magical godly ichor, which makes him impervious to wounds. Um, so Achilles is effectively invulnerable. The trouble is, Thetis dips him into the ichor by holding him onto his heels. Um, and as a result, the heels don't get the ichor, and he's still weak, weak in his heels. This is where we get the term Achilles' heel, um, as like the sole weakness of an otherwise powerful or invulnerable being. This is also why we named the particular tendon the Achilles tendon, the one that runs down the bottom of your or the back of your foot. Um, because that is apparently where Achilles was weak, and that is exactly where Paris's arrow strikes him, and like it becomes infected or it's poisoned or something, and as a result, Achilles dies. Um, after Achilles dies, things kind of fall apart for the Greeks. Um, Achilles' armor, which is super-duper awesome and super-duper powerful, because Hephaestus made it for him when he went to kill Hector, um, the Greeks the like big time Greek heroes, namely Ajax, big Ajax, not little Ajax, little Ajax is a dick. Um, big Ajax and Odysseus kind of fight for it and Odysseus manages to win the fight even though Ajax is really stronger than Odysseus. Odysseus just again outsmarted him. Um, and Ajax being so disappointed at this turn of events goes crazy and starts killing people willy nilly. Um, the gods sort of redirect him so he takes out his rage on the livestock instead of actual Greek soldiers. But eventually they have to put Ajax down in short. Um, so the two greatest Greek heroes die back to back, Achilles and then Ajax, over this freaking armor. Um, Odysseus manages to survive and do fairly well. Um, but lots of other major Greek heroes will perish during this war, this prolonged battle. Um, however, our major players, Agamemnon, Menelaus, Odysseus, they are going to make it home safe and sound, sort of. Um, eventually, the way that they actually do overthrow the city is using the vehicle of the Trojan horse, which you've probably also heard about. Once again, we have an, an Odysseus plan that, over, that wins the day for the Greeks, um, their plan is that they're going to build this gigantic wooden horse as a sort of like gift to the Trojans, supposedly as a sacrifice to the gods. Um, 
only instead of a gift, it's actually going to be hollow inside. And a bunch of Greek soldiers, including Odysseus, are going to hide inside of the horse. Um, so when the Trojans wheel the horse into the city, the soldiers can leap out, open the gates, and let the Greeks in. Um, so to make the deception complete, the Greeks sail off after they leave the Trojan horse. They're like, here's this gift, we surrender, we're done, no more fighting, bye! And the Trojans bring the horse into the city, and then under cover of darkness, the troops are going to jump out and open the gates. Um, the trouble is, there are a number of hiccups along the way in this, in even this plan. For one thing, obviously, Cassandra identifies that there are soldiers in the horse, um, so she warns everybody, but again, she's Cassandra, nobody listens to her, so nobody pays any attention. Um, Helen, and what is probably the weirdest thing that Helen does throughout this entire story, Helen apparently, like, according to the story, walks around the Trojan horse and calls to the soldiers in the voices of their wives. Um, and of course, you know, these soldiers have been away from their homes for like 12 years at this point in time. They are very homesick and very sexually frustrated. Um, so it is quite an effort restraining them from calling back to, the, to Helen pretending to be their wives. Um, and some versions of the story even have it that like one of the guys in the horse is about to yell out and Odysseus has to like stab him through the throat and kill him to prevent him from giving their position away. But the question I really want to ask in this place is, why does Helen even do this? Like, whose side is Helen even on at this point in time? Um, like, it's hard to say. Her, her role is very ambiguous. We'll talk about that more when we actually read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, but, like, what the heck, Helen? What, what, what is your endgame here? Um, at any rate, eventually, under cover of darkness, like, Helen doesn't warn the rest of the Trojans, but just plays this weird game with the with calling out in the, in the voices of the wives. I don't know. At night, the guys jump out of the horse, they open up the gates, the Greeks sail back into the city, and they proceed to sack the shit out of Troy. Um, in this process, they kill Priam, the king of the city, um, and it is said that, you know, Priam enjoyed, like, one of the greatest lives of any, like, person in the record because, you know, he had a hundred daughters and a hundred sons in the most, most wealthy, most powerful city in the ancient world. But then he died having watched, like, every single one of his sons and daughters die. And thus the misery of Priam is sort of, like, important enough to be almost a fable at this point in time. Hector's son um, gets chucked off the battlements and dies, so that ends Hector's line. Uh, we'll talk about that more in the Iliad as well. Um, basically, Paris gets wrecked, as well as all of the remaining sons of Priam. The one exception is Aeneas, and we'll talk about Aeneas more next week, because he will go on to be a major player in the founding of Rome. Um, in short, Troy is just, like, ended overnight like disappears off the face of the earth the greeks wreck it so thoroughly um they pillage the place so badly um but a couple of things before we move on to like where this story goes from here um again i want to stress in this little section of the class the historicity that we're dealing with here and while we'll deal with some of the history of troy and some of the archaeological evidences later um, i want to take a moment and talk about like exactly how or what we know about troy the city and the trojan war the battle outside of what homer tells us 
Um, so on the one hand, definitely keep that myth in mind, like everything that I just said, the whole story, that is incredibly valuable to our class because you should know that information going into our reading of the Iliad and the Odyssey. But on the flip side, I want to talk about like what Troy actually was. Um, now you'll remember from the map on the PowerPoint, and if you don't remember, by all means, bring up the PowerPoint, look on that third slide where it shows like Troy and all of the other major cities in Greece. Um, Troy was an important trade city, as far as we can tell. Um, it rested on this wonderful little coastal location where it could communicate with all of Greece, but also was easy to get to from most of Asia Minor. Um, so Troy became this sort of like port of call between these two major civilizations, the Greeks on the one hand and the Anatolians on the other, which in turn had access to the Persian Empire and like other major empires of the ancient world. Um, now, the archaeological evidence we have of Troy is a bit confusing and a bit muddled and very incomplete. Um, people found Troy, like archaeologists found what they thought would be the city of Troy in the 19th century. Um, and this was a huge archaeological find. Like up until then, everyone had basically thought that Troy was just a myth, that it never existed, that it was just, you know, a series of stories. Um, but then we found this archaeological site where there were all of these relics and all of these artifacts that suggested an ancient culture. Now, what we found was a city that was much more recent than, you know, the Troy of the Trojan War and ancient Greece. Um, and as a result, the archaeologists were like, well, we have to find the ancient one, like not the one that existed in like the 10th century or the 12th century. We need to find the one that was initially there when the Greeks took over the place. Um, and figuring that as a result, it would have been the bottommost layer of the Trojan city, they basically dynamited. <laughs> yes, this is how archaeology worked in the 19th century. They dynamited through multiple layers of the Trojan city to get to the one that existed in ancient Greece. The trouble is, they missed. Um, the city of Troy was many, many layers deep, like possibly even a dozen layers. And the bottommost layer was not the ancient Troy of the Greeks versus the Trojans. It was something even more ancient. Apparently Troy has been around since like 2000, 2500, maybe even 3000 BCE. There are relics that go that far into the past. So it's been around a long time. Um, it is an institution. Like, even as far as Homer and Hesiod are concerned, like, it's way older than them. And the Troy that they're talking about as being the ones that the Greeks sacked is relatively recent compared to how old some of these Trojan artifacts actually were. Um, apparently, Troy was an important port city, not just because it communicated with the Greeks in, the, in Asia Minor, um, but because it also was like this major textile um like trading facility like clothes and fabrics were being traded through troy for millennia even before the trojan war um but what we do have of the actual like late bronze age ancient greece versus ancient troy battle site suggests that yes there was in fact a war um there are remnants of the walls as well as like pots and you know 
obvious Greek influences. We found Greek burial sites nearby, including what we suspect is the burial site of Agamemnon, which P.S. disagrees with the myths, but whatever. Um, we have found masks and funerary arrangements that are typically Mycenaean all around the fields of Ilium. Um, for all intents and purposes, it looked like the Trojan War was in fact a thing that happened. Um, it probably didn't go down the way that we talked about it, like the way that the myth talks about it. It probably did not conclude with a giant wooden horse. Um, who freaking knows? Um, what we do know is that it is likely based in fact. There was in fact a Troy, there was in fact a Mycenaean invasion of Troy, um, there were in fact lots of casualties as a result of this war. Um, so keep that in mind, but keep in mind that as much as this is sort of the end of Troy as far as the Greeks and uh, Homer are concerned, this is not the end of Troy as far as the world is concerned. In fact, it's suggested that Homer was himself Trojan. Um, that the poem that we get, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the cycle that it borrows from, which I mentioned last time in class, um, if there was this four-part epic tradition describing the entire Trojan cycle, like the approach to Troy, the actual war of Tro around Troy, the sacking of Troy, and then the homecoming, we the fragments of it that we have are from not a Greek tradition, but a Trojan tradition. Um, Homer seems to be if anything, more sympathetic to the Trojans. Um, and his Greek suggests that it was the Greeks who were living in the vicinity of Asia Minor rather than the Greeks that were living on the Balkan Peninsula. Um, so we are getting what may very well be the Trojan version of the burning of Troy as Greek propaganda, um, which is just so weird. Um, at any rate, like... Keep that in mind as we go forward and read the Iliad and the Odyssey, that this may very well be more from the Trojan perspective than it is from the Greek perspective, as much as the Greeks are sort of positioned as the heroes. Um, but Troy also continued to be a thing, like lots of different iterations of the city after it was sacked. As much as it exits the historical record at this point in time, it apparently seemed to thrive and probably was another major part of the uh, Persian Empire when the Persians and the Greeks were fighting in the classical period, you know, thousands of, or nearly a thousand years later. Um, so Troy, very much a thing. Do not, like, ignore it. Um, or And do not think that it is just some fanciful imagination of Homer and company. Um, but to return to the myth, we then get the really involved part of everybody coming home from the Battle of Troy, the sacking of Troy. Um, and this also is a giant shit show. Like, the going to Troy was a giant shit show, being in Troy was a giant shit show, coming home from Troy is a giant shit show. Um, specifically, Odysseus apparently gets off on the wrong foot by offending Poseidon. Like, he makes a bunch of sacrifices, but he apparently omits Poseidon, according to Apollodorus. Um, Homer understands this differently, so don't take that, like, too deeply. But suffice it to say that there's at least one tradition where Odysseus really screws the pooch just right out of the gate. Um, Odysseus is going to be the major person we focus on in his homecoming. The Odyssey is the story of him trying to get home from Troy and failing for a another 10 years um, and in the process losing all of his soldiers and all of his spoils and basically like the shirt off his back like he will come home very empty handed um, but 
since we're going to be reading about him in the Odyssey, I don't want to focus on him too much here. Um, instead, I want to focus on some of the other homecoming stories. Um, specifically, we get Menelaus, who returns home with Helen and proceeds to live pretty much happily forever after as these things go. Like, Menelaus's story is not all that exciting, um, but we will see Menelaus and Helen happily hanging out in the Odyssey, so keep in mind that, like, that one ends relatively well. Helen remains an enigma, like, even in the Odyssey she's a bit enigmatic, we're not going to see her, like, in the action, um, but nonetheless just fascinating all the time. But more exciting are the stories of Agamemnon and little Ajax. Um, Agamemnon comes home, and you'll remember when he departed earlier, he was not on great terms with his wife. Clytemnestra was very mad at him about sacrificing Iphigenia. Um, while Agamemnon was gone, Clytemnestra apparently has been shacking up with another local king who has basically been running the show in Agamemnon's absence. So Agamemnon gets home, and this is very inconvenient to both Clytemnestra and her new husband, slash beau, um, so they conspire to murder him. They apparently give him a shirt that has no hole for a head. And while Agamemnon is like struggling to put on the, the trick shirt, um, Clytemnestra and this usurper murder Agamemnon, stabbing him at his own table. Um, but this is not the end of that story because Agamemnon's son Orestes gets upset, um, is wants to avenge his father, and so like he then murders Clytemnestra, and it just becomes a giant, you know, mess. Um, we will see Agamemnon very grumpy about this situation in the Odyssey later on. Um, we also need to talk about Neoptolemus. Like I totally forgot about Neoptolemus. Neoptolemus is Achilles' son. Um, Achilles, who is very grumpy about the whole, like, having to go to the Trojan War in the first place, because you'll notice that he was not one of the suitors of Helen, and therefore had no obligation to go, um, but kind of got roped into it because, you know, fame and honor, and he was a really powerful soldier, so he went. Um, he was hoping to keep his son, Neoptolemus, out of the situation, um, but Neoptolemus grows up, and eventually, during the Trojan War, everybody gets an oracle that the only way the Greeks are going to win is if they bring Neoptolemus along with them. So they go back to Achilles' hometown, and they get Neoptolemus, and Neoptolemus is actually the guy who will kill Priam in the sacking of Troy. Um, Neoptolemus will go home with relatively little incident, although he will not be especially awesome or revered when he gets there. Um... But the last one is kind of my favorite, like Little Ajax, who sucks. Um, Little Ajax doesn't do a whole lot in the Trojan War. Um, mostly he's awesome because of what happens to him on his way home. Um, Little Ajax gets very shipwrecked. Like, he gets into this huge storm and Poseidon destroys his whole ship and, like, all of his crewmen die and he washes up on the shore of this giant rock and rather than being like, oh no, how do I, you know, rebuild, little Ajax is apparently like, I survived, suckers! Like, what do you gods want to do about it? I survived, you can't kill me, I am the best! And Zeus hits him with a lightning bolt because hubris. We'll talk about hubris more in the very near future. Um, so yeah, basically the moral of this story is if you survive, don't throw your middle finger at the gods. Like, you were not awesome. You just got friggin' lucky. Um, 
As for Odysseus, he has a whole battery of stuff that he has to do before he can get home, which we'll cover in the Odyssey, and there's even stuff after the Odyssey that he has to do. Like, Odysseus has the worst time of it because he's ticked off Poseidon so badly. But fortunately, since he has Athena on his side, it, it kind of works out for him. Um, but suffice it to say that you should know this and remember this going into our reading of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, this is the foundational national myth of Greek identity. Um, this is the story that Alexander carried to all parts of the ancient world. Um, this is the story that these, that our culture has been telling and retelling itself for, you know, the 2000 years, the 2500 years since Greek classical culture was a thing. This is the story that unites the entire ancient world under one myth in a very real sense. The, Ro the Romans are going to inherit this from the Greeks and they're going to modify it a little bit. They're going to reinterpret it a little bit, but generally they're going to just adopt it wholesale. Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, this whole Trojan cycle is the defining classic of our culture. Like I cannot point to a work of literature more important than the Iliad and the Odyssey. It doesn't exist. Like, the closest that anyone can probably get is Goethe's Faust, or maybe, maybe, like, maybe the Gospels. That's it. Like, these are the only things that could come close to competing. This is so foundational to who we are, and Homer's perspectives and ideas will resonate with us as long as we tell stories, um, at least until something really radical happens to change up the formula. Um, so when I talk about the Greek national identity, this is the Ur text. Um, not because it's necessarily the text that caused Greece to become a nation. Like Mycenae and the, the Greek city-states that got together for the Trojan War were very much there by accident, um, as far as both the mythic version and historical version are concerned. Um, but it became the national myth because of Herodotus, because of Alexander the Great, because of the conquest of the Greek culture over all of the cultures of the ancient world, because in order for anyone to do business in Egypt or Persia or Ethiopia or Greece or Rome or India, you had to speak Greek. That's the way it went. And as a result, you had to know Homer. The two are one and the same. The Greek language is Homer's language in the same way that English is Shakespeare's language. And half of the stuff that we say in English is the product of like coinages that Shakespeare himself produced. Um, Homer has the same effect on Greek and Greek is the foundation of literally all Western culture. Um, so when I say national identity, this is what I mean. Um, the Greek myths specifically the Iliad and the Odyssey, through the lens that Herodotus gave of one unified culture spread over a wide area. Now next week I'm going to contrast this Greek culture against the other cultures of the time. So we're going to read the Exodus um, story from the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about how the Israelites perceived themselves and their own role in the universe. And then we're going to talk about the Romans, how the Romans sort of adopt the Greek mythology and also modify it and change it and add to it. Um, how the Greek, how the Romans sort of perceive themselves in relation to the Greeks, especially. Um, so more identity myths for next week, but we're departing from, from the Greeks for a little while so we can understand these other cultures and how their like,
culture influences the development of, you know, the 2,500 years that brought about us. Um, so keep these in mind. We will be contrasting them next week. I'll talk to you then.